0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. In January last year, a man called Hiro Onoda died at the age of 91. There's a picture of him as a young man. He was a soldier in the Japanese Army who was serving on Lubang Island in the Philippines when the Second World War ended in 1945, but Onoda did not believe that it had ended. So he didn't surrender. He held out in the jungle for another 30 years. How did that happen? As World War II was nearing its end, Mr. Onoda, then a lieutenant, was cut off on the island by American troops coming north, and he said he had orders not to surrender. Every Japanese soldier was prepared for death, but as an intelligence officer, I was ordered to conduct guerrilla warfare and not to die. He said, I became an officer and received an order. If I couldn't carry it out, I would feel shame. And he added, I am very competitive. You don't say, (laughs) very competitive, you carried on the Second World War for another 30 years. While he was on the island, he surveyed military facilities and he engaged in various sporadic clashes with locals. He ignored several attempts to get him to surrender, living out in the jungle. He dismissed search parties who came to tell him the war was ended, and he also dismissed leaflets that were dropped from the sky by the Japanese as ploys. He said, the leaflets were filled with mistakes, so I judged it was a plot by the Americans. Finally, March 1974 his aging former commanding officer traveled to the Philippines to rescind his original orders in person. Mr. Onoda saluted the flag and handed over his samurai sword while still wearing a tattered army uniform. The Philippine government granted him a pardon, although many people in Lubang never forgave him for the 30 people he killed during his campaign. Now, would you agree that it's important to know which era you were living in? It's important to know which time zone you're living in. We must know which era we're living in so that we know how to operate and how to live. But some of us are living in the wrong time zone. And I don't just mean jet lag. Some of us are living in the wrong time zone because the big takeaway of John's gospel is this. God has come in the flesh, lived the kind of life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, risen again and ascended to heaven. The time zone has now changed. We're in a new era, we're in the the era of Jesus Christ and believing in him gives life and you need to start living like a Christ-centered person. This is so important because we can live our lives out in the jungle, out in the woods, not embracing the riches of new life that Jesus promises his followers, but living with divided loyalties. Or some people actually are Christians but they're just not fully confident that it's all really real. And so they always have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, kind of hedging their bets. But in fact, Jesus has come, and therefore all bets are off. There is no uncertainty. He has come, he's died, he's risen, and he calls us now to a new life of serving him and serving others. And he makes great promises about life now and in the future if we'll follow him. And if you've been around at this series on John's Gospel for any time at all, you probably realize that following Jesus is a bit more committed than following someone on Twitter. We've spent more than six months in this great book of John's Gospel, the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And even covering just half of it in that time has sometimes felt like we've been rushing. Today's our last session in John for a while, although we hope to come back to it. And I want to finish by going to the back door, chapter 20. With this point, we've got to start living in the right time zone. Three points come out from John chapter 20. There's a new creation, there's a new commission, and there's a new conviction. A new creation, a new commission, and a new conviction. Firstly, our slide here, a new creation. Let's look at verses 11 to 18. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now we take up this story at the tomb of Jesus. We've already read Uh, as Prabhupada read for us, that two of the disciples, one called Simon Peter, and the other called, who refers to himself as the beloved disciple or the one that Jesus loved, they ran to the tomb. And this disciple who, uh, they were both running, but he says in verse 4, the other disciple outran Peter. Now most scholars think that the person that's talking about is actually the author of the book, his way of referring to himself as the other disciple or the one Jesus loved. He never uses his own name. So it's a bit cheeky to point out that he beat Peter to the tomb. I guess Peter was built for short distance sprinting. And this other disciple gets there first, and they both look in. Uh, but Peter, being really bold and kind of confident, goes into the tomb, and he looks at the grave clothes. Now, the Jewish people would have uh, wrapped up in grave clothes, covered with 100 pounds of spices and preservatives for the body. And they look, and there are the clothes, but there's no body in them and they turn, and they run back to town. But they leave someone behind. Because in verse 11, we read about this woman, Mary Magdalene, a woman who'd been healed by Jesus, who'd been one of his closest followers, a woman who owed her, really owed her life to him. And she's there alone now, and she is heartbroken. She's weeping. She's wailing with grief. Where is he? How, how is it that he came to die like this on the cross? And where is his body now? What have they done with his body? She wasn't expecting that he'd risen from the dead. And Jesus comes to her and meets her at this moment of desperation and grief. It's a remarkable, beautiful story how this person comes and the angels maybe sort of go behind you. And she turns around and sees this figure in the morning light. She doesn't recognize who he is at first. And she says, Sir... Uh, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And he says, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And then she hears a voice. It's just saying one word, Mary. And she knows the voice. She knows it's Jesus. And she turns towards him and cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni, or Rabboni, which means teacher. And she has this conversation with the risen Lord Jesus. Now on one level, this is part of a case, a watertight case of eyewitness testimony and proof that the Bible writers give us that Jesus really did, literally and physically, rise from the dead in a renewed body that was still recognizably him. But you know, there's another level. John always is working at two levels at once. There's the, the immediate level and there's always something deep. And what's going on here that's really deep is that something big has changed because of Jesus' death and resurrection. This isn't just a display of power. It's a new time zone. Look with me at verse 17. This, we, we can skip over this so easily. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers... And tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, up until this point, Jesus normally refers to his followers as his disciples. On a rare occasion, he would extend them the rare privilege of being called friends. But here he says, Go and tell my brothers, my brothers, that I'm going to ascend to my Father. And your father. You see the language here? He's pointing out that something new has happened in world history. That now, you and I, human beings, sinful people, can be adopted into God's family. And he's our father. And we're Jesus' brothers and sisters. It's a whole new world. A new creation. A new time zone. And in this world, this new world, Jesus gives us a job to do. The new creation has a new commission. Now, each of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has towards the end a commission text where Jesus kind of gives his marching orders to his followers and tells them how they're supposed to live now. The most famous one is in Matthew chapter 28. It's often called the Great Commission. Jesus' uh, final words to his disciples He says, All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, and therefore, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now John's gospel has its own commission, but it's very easy to overlook. It's so subtle. Look with me with you at verse 21 and 22. This is where these disciples are upstairs. They're all huddled together. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're, They're completely disorientated. They don't know what's happening. They're still in shock and grief. And Jesus comes and stands among them, and he, gives, he wishes them peace, shalom. And after this, verse 20, he shows them his hands and his side, still bearing the marks, the scars of his crucifixion. And they are overjoyed when they see the Lord. And he gives them this new commission. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. It's so brief, you could skip right over it. As the Father has sent me, so I'm now sending you. If you've read John's Gospel, if you've been with us for some of this series, you know that the Father sent the Son all the way down into the world. He took on himself our humanity. He took on our grubby, mediocre existence. He became one of us. And he went down even further to death on a cross. The lowest kind of death. He came all the way down. The Father sent him. And now Jesus says in that way I'm now sending you disciples. Now in 1974 it was a huge gathering of uh, world Christians from all over the the globe. The leaders of evangelical Bible believing churches and movements from from literally every continent. And they gathered together in a place called Lausanne in Switzerland. And a British pastor called John Stott gave an amazing speech about mission. And he said, I just want to tell you some of what he said because it's so powerful. He said, the living God of the Bible is also a sending God, which is also what mission means. So the mission of the church rises up from the mission of God and is to be modeled on it. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, even so I'm sending you. And in at least two major ways, Jesus sends us in the way he was sent. Here's the first one. He sends us into the world. He sends us into the world. For he was sent into the world. He didn't touch down like a visitor from another planet or an outer space alien bringing his own alien culture with him. No, he took to himself our humanity, our flesh and blood. He actually became one of us and experienced our frailty and our suffering and our temptations. He even bore our sin and died our death. And now he sends us into the world to identify with other people, to become vulnerable as he did. Bible-believing Christians often fail to take this principle seriously. It comes more naturally to us, some of us, to shout the gospel at people from a distance than to involve ourselves deeply in their lives, to think ourselves into their problems and to feel with them in their pains. Can you see why we place so much importance on these these life groups? Connecting locally, being with people, not just creating a Christian bubble, but actually connecting. Jesus sends us into the world, and he also sends us into the world to serve For he came to serve, not just to seek, not just to save, but also to serve. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 45 Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to give his life, came to die. That's the climax of his life, but it was a life of service. He announced the kingdom of God, he preached and taught, but he also fed hungry mouths washed dirty feet, healed the sick, comforted the brokenhearted, raised the dead. All through, he was pouring himself out in selfless service to others. And now he says, hey, if you want to be my disciple, I'm sending you in the same way that I was sent, into the world, into the world to serve. So just think for a moment, will you? Where will you be tomorrow morning? Monday morning, where will you be? Will you be at a desk? Will you be in front of a classroom full of children? Will you be in a toddler group in front of even more children? Will you be in a hospital walking around the wards? Will you be in an office? Where will you be? You know, Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, has sent you there to serve. To be a servant to other people. Are you known in your workplace as a servant? Someone who isn't just about building their own career and reputation. Are you known as that? Are you known in your community as someone who serves, who does things for other people without getting anything back? Are you known for that? That's what you've been sent to do. This is your great commission. As the Father sent him, so he sends you. And if you want to know just how high the stakes are for our commission, look with me at this strange verse 23. Verse 23 is really... uh, Strange, we read this in our life group on Wednesday night and someone came up to me afterwards and said, what does that mean? Verse 23, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Whoa, what is this about? Did somebody sneak in a bad verse into the Bible? I thought that God was the one that forgives sins, right? Who can forgive sins except God alone? Absolutely right. So what does this mean? It must mean this. From now on, God will forgive people through his disciples. (laughs) Through his disciples. Jesus says, if you go and forgive people because you're taking the message, the good news of forgiveness, it's down to you. Take the message and go. And if you don't take it, they may not be forgiven. It's an awesome responsibility. It would be too much for us to bear. It's too much for me. But you know, we don't go alone because the verse right before that, verse 22, gives us this marvelous assurance. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Right at the beginning of the Bible, in the the creation story, God breathes uh, life, his life, into the first human being. And that... uh, human that body this physical stuff becomes a spiritual being here jesus breathes on his followers this new people and gives them spiritual life and says to them go and take this message out you don't go alone you go with the holy spirit who is with you living in you helping you to fulfill this great new commission there's a new creation that started There's a new commission that's been given. Thirdly and finally, there's actually now a new conviction. Verses 24 to 31. Because there was one disciple who missed it all. Now, I I, I guess he must have been absolutely gutted. Thomas, where was he? I mean, imagine he's popped out for a bag of chips or gone to the cash point or gone to Tesco and he comes back and the other guys are sitting around in the room just looking and he says, what's happening, guys? And they said, you just missed Jesus. What? Yeah, yeah, he, Jesus was here. No, he wasn't. He, we all saw him. You know? We actually saw his hands and his side. It was him. He's risen from the dead. You should have heard what he said to us. What did he say then? He, said he, gave, he gave us this great new commission. You know, and he wished us peace. And Thomas is there, and he's just thinking, well, I can't believe it. I just can't believe this. Now, I tend to think of Thomas as a Yorkshireman. <laughs> Earlier on in the Gospel... When Jesus wanted to go back to, to this place, Bethany, near Jerusalem, uh, to where his friend Lazarus had died, and Martha and Mary were there, uh, brokenhearted, uh, none of them wanted to go, because they knew that there's a death threat out on Jesus. But who spoke up? Thomas. And you know what he said? Let us go with him, so that we can die as well. He's <laughs> just really grumpy. And then a bit later on, Jesus is giving this amazing teaching called the high priestly prayer. And Thomas basically says, I don't get it. Can you make it a bit clearer, please? (laughs) And here he is. For some reason, the one guy who wasn't there. And he comes back and he says, do you know what? I'm not going to believe it. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And Jesus, in his grace, comes back a week later. And Thomas gets what he asked for. Thomas is with them, and again, although the doors were locked, Jesus comes and stands among them. Somehow Jesus, in his new physical body, intersects between our world and our universe and another world, and he can pass between them. Now, this isn't science fiction. This was written in the first century. It's John's way of recording what actually happened. He just is telling us the door was locked, but somehow Jesus is there. Don't know how it happened. And he's not a ghost, because you can touch him. You can eat with him. They see him eating fish and other food, and they can put their hand on his side, and Jesus comes to Thomas, and he says, hey Thomas, Thomas is sitting there, probably all the blood's drained out of his face. Oh no, what have I said? He says, Thomas, come on, put your finger in here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it in my side, stop doubting, and believe. And Thomas says the one thing nobody said so far, although it has been hinting at it all along. He says, my Lord and my God. So to the guy who's been given a bad rap as Doubting Thomas goes the highest accolade. He's the first person who says, Jesus is my God. This man who he's walked around with for three years and been on sleepovers with and been on different kinds of tours and heard him speak and chatted and talked, he looks at him and he says, my God my Lord and my God. There's a new conviction. For us, it's based on eyewitness testimony that Jesus did physically and literally rise from the dead. And these people who weren't expecting it and who were completely blown away by it came to believe it and then they gave their lives in service of that message. Some of them themselves were martyred. So I'm grateful for Thomas. I don't know about you. I'm glad that he said what he said and that Jesus came back. I wanted that kind of proof myself. I don't I'm not that gullible. I don't normally believe this kind of thing. But it's here for us in black and white. But you know the main point of this story about Thomas isn't actually about Thomas. It's about you. Look at verse 29. Jesus told him, "Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." Blessed are those who have not seen. Now that's you and me, isn't it? We haven't seen. We're going on their testimony. We're going on the words of God which have been written down for us in the Scriptures. And what Jesus is saying to us through this, and he's saying it to you even now in this room by his Spirit, is you are blessed because God has woken you up and made you understand and see that Jesus is real, that he rose from the dead, and that he lives forever. And one day he'll take you to be with him. You're blessed if you believe, not having seen. So Christian friend, you've been given a new conviction. It's about a whole new state of affairs that has started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Son of God himself calls you blessed. And this brings us back to the start. Which time zone are you living in? Are you living in the world pre-Jesus, where life is based on this creation, and on what you can touch, taste, feel, hear, buy, and obtain, only for the few years you're alive. Is your life based in that time zone, or the world after Jesus? The world in which everything that we once knew and lived for has now been turned on its head and turned upside down, and we've been given a completely different view of reality. So I want to finish this series with a question. How, then, shall we live? How then shall we live? We've seen Jesus. If you've been on this journey through John's Gospel, you've seen him, maybe as you've never seen him before. How shall we live? You can live one of two ways you can live as a creation centered person or as a Christ centered person. Jesus Christ is now seated on the throne at the right hand of God. He's described as the Lamb of God. He still bears the scars, forever part of his body reminding us of how he was prepared to humble himself at such a cost to save sinners, to take our sin and shame upon himself. He was pierced for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. And to bring us peace, he was punished. Now that has to impact us today. In fact, it should help us to see life completely differently. See, we all grow up as creation-centered people. We grow up seeing that life is here to be lived to the full. Enjoy it. Make the most of it. And your family probably build this into your life. Think about your career. Think about your options. Think about good holidays. Think about houses and buying a house, building an extension and doing it up. Think about having kids. And Christians can end up as creation-centered Christians. We recognize that Jesus has saved us and we've come to him to rescue us. But that salvation is a bit like the entrance ticket. And once we got it, we're now free to go and live life and enjoy creation like everyone else, only just a little bit different. So we don't swear. We don't get drunk. But we're basically living for the same kinds of things everyone else is. Being focused on enjoying things. Being focused on making the most of life as a christian of course as creation centered but this gospel is calling you to live life for christ with him at the center and enjoying creation on the side now when we see him with his wounds still visible above we realize that the cross is at the heart of god the cross is at his heart For him, the mission is absolutely central. His heart is for men, women, boys and girls from every tribe to be saved and rescued and brought into the people of God. So the center of the universe is Jesus and his mission. Now when you appreciate that, your life's got to change, hasn't it? Here are four ways it will change our prayers. Creation-centered prayers pray about our health. Pray about our jobs. Pray about our children. Pray about getting a car park space. And those things aren't bad. But Christ-centered prayers are focused on the kingdom. Praying like the Lord's prayer. Only one part of it is for daily bread. The rest of it is about his kingdom coming. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray, what really matters to you comes out. How are your prayers? Are they creation-centered? Or Christ-centered. When we appreciate this, it will change our gifts, how we use our gifts, how we spend our money. Creation-centered Christians are all about this world. They're all about how to spend money on the next holiday, how to spend money on the house, get the bathroom done, how to get a better car that doesn't break down all the time. But Christ-centered Christians realize that the first port of call The first call on our financial thinking must be, how can I bend my resources to the gospel? Because that's the most important thing. It will change our view of church. A creation-centered Christian thinks about church as one more thing in your week that you will get to when you can. I'll be there when I'm on rota, for example. But when you are a Christ-centered person, you realize that the very purpose of Jesus' coming Dying, rising again, was to gather to himself a people and unite them together. That's why he came. So the gathering of the church is the center of who we are. It goes in my diary first. I build everything else around that. Changes our prayers, changes our gifts, changes our view of church. Fourthly, it changes our view of our energy. Creation-centered Christians use their best energies on their careers, on their hobbies, on their families. On their homes. And the second best goes to the gospel. But Christ-centered Christians think about how to use their best energies for the gospel. For him who is worthy. And everything else gets the second best. Now this is really real, isn't it? This is a challenge for every one of us. We've been through this series. John has given us his, his wonderful book and all this teaching about Jesus for a reason. So that we'll believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we'll have life in his name, and that life is a new life lived for him. It's a challenge to us. Are we going to live as a creation-centered person or a Christ-centered person? That's why he came. That's why he died. He came to give you himself, to believe in him, to have life in his name, not as an add-on, not as an extra, not as just an entrance ticket, but to be one with him to be united with him in his death and suffering as well as in his resurrection. May God give us his spirit in that powerful way that Jesus gave to his disciples. And may we have the same heart that they did to live for him, to give ourselves for him, to serve even as he did. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.